artificial intelligence, robotics, biotechnology, virtual reality, big data. These are consistent words and terms that have been repeated by tech experts, by government officials, by organizations, institutions, companies, and by the best brands in the world. They have repeatedly been described as the modern technologies that will take over our world, as probably the most significant realities or technologies or products of the 21st century. These modern technologies have been described as emerging technologies with huge destructive effects in business, economy, education, and generally in the social space. Now, as tech companies spring up here and there, growing at exponential rates, and tech products and services you know, keep becoming ubiquitous and saturating our public and private space, we are both being increasingly incentivized and endangered by these technologies. So the important question, or the questions that become really important in this age of ours become, how can you understand better these emerging technologies as to better utilize them? How can you apply these technologies that set us to stay relevant in the coming decades and centuries characterized by disruptive innovations and breakneck upheavals, very fast changes that are occurring. And what are the merits and the demerits of these technologies? What implications do these technologies pretend for our planet and how can we utilize them to solve our greatest global challenges? On the show today, I'm joined by Anne Boysen, with whom our discourse ideas about understanding and leveraging on the potentials of emerging technologies. Thanks for joining me and welcome on board. Artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, biotechnology. They are powerful and cataclysmic. I think the emergence of artificial intelligence will redefine our lives forever. With this technology, our future hangs in the balance. Emerging technologies are the future of humanity. This is the Future Discussions Podcast. On this show, we talk about almost any issue that affects our future as humans. Look at this through the lens of emerging, converging and destructive technologies, paying close attention to how we can leverage on these technologies to create the kind of future we want. I am Augustus Chuku. Join me as I take you on this amazing journey of discovering our future and the powers locked within our emerging technologies. Boyson is the founder of After the Millennials, the first consultant service and blog designated specifically to understanding our youngest generation Premium and the future that will shape and be shaped by them. By using a custom-made approach, adapted for strategic foresight, content analysis and data analytics, 
and dives deep into trend-sporting social statistics and data mining to advise businesses and non-profits on how to act on early signs of change. She shares her insights as an advisor via consulting projects and keynotes around the world. She holds a Master in Future Studies from the University in Houston and has an additional graduate level education in business analytics, data mining from Colorado State University and Penn State University. A great pleasure to have you on the show. You're welcome to the Future Discussions podcast. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. As a way of beginner, I would like to ask you, how do you understand the very concept of emerging technologies? Because for married people, the technologies or the, the, the technologies that they refer to as emerging are actually, uh, for some, not emerging in the sense that you've had these technologies being here in development for over decades and, and, and years. So for many, they really do not understand some of the technologies that we refer to as emerging. A practical example, biotechnology as emerging technology. So from your perspective, how do you understand the very concept of emerging technologies? That's great. Yeah. So the the concept of emerging technology, it presumes that the technology has already shown promise to be for wide adoption in a society. And I think very often that is a presumption we rely on a little bit too often. So technology in itself is merely a sort of a, a, an applied science that has been engineered to help solve some sort of problem. But it's not a given that it, that, okay. a, a, yeah. that a market will actually adopt it. So when we talk about emerging technologies, we're addressing those technology that we believe are going to have profound impact on our society. Technologies that will change the way we produce things, the way we live our lives, the day we uh, the way we do uh, things differently. And you, you touched upon some of that yourself when you said that a lot of what we call emerging technologies are technologies we're already using today. So it's a little bit of a boundary. What is emerging to me might be not emerging to you, etc. cetera. Uh, so I think it's a little bit of a still a fuzzy concept. One thing I think is important to remember is there are two laws. One is called Morse law and the other one is called Metcalfe's law. Uh, and these two laws, need, they need to be synced together and they need to work together in order for that emerging technology to actually really have some promise in society. So Morse law relates to what Gordon Moore discovered back in the stone age of the computer when he realized that there was a doubling rate within computer technology because you could, the amount of transistors that you can fit on a circuit seemed to double every other year. Now, this pertains to technology and its potential, what it can technologically do, but it doesn't address how it is going to be adopted into a market. So if we really want to understand market adoption, we have to understand a little bit more about the human idiosyncrasies and, and, and how we work as humans, because there are a lot of, I'm, I'm sure if you go into the different patent registers, you, you find a lot of potential emerging technologies that you never hear of. And that is because for whatever reason, they were never adopted. They never found an investor. They just never made it to the surface. So there's a lot of survivorship bias when we talk about emerging technologies. So Metcalfe's law addresses the network. It addresses the fact that it, there seems to be a squared function that operates in a network. When you 
have a network and that can be a social network. It can be a, any sort of network. When, when that network can make one extra node and one more connection, it has actually uh, squared its function. It's not only connected with that extra node, but it's connected to many, many extra nodes. And so there, there's an exponential proportion to the network and how it grows. And that is the second necessary condition for a, an emerging technology or what we call a disruptive technology to take off. Because if we don't have the network effects, uh, if we don't have a market that is massively interested in adopting this technology, it will remain in the patent register. Great point you have there. I'd like to stay a little bit on what you talked about on, concerning uh, Moore's Law. If, if you look at uh, the Moore's Law and how it operates, you find out that at the very stage of its growth, at the very stage of its development, it's linear. The growth rate is linear. And so it appears to be imperceptible you know, to people you know, in that early stage. And then as it goes, as it grows gradually, at some point it becomes exponential. The growth rate becomes exponential. Now, do you think that part of the problem that people have, or part of the problems that people have in adopting these technologies, emerging technologies, rapidly into the market, and it comes from their inability to perceive or really understand these technologies that have all of a sudden become exponential in their growth rate, you know, from being linear to become exponential. Do you think that it's, this is a contributing factor to people's lack of adoption or slow-paced adoption rate on these emerging technologies? I hope you got my question there. Yes, yes, I got it. I think I got it. So I think what okay. you asked is, the fact that the uh, exponential curve starts off as linear, it's, it starts off like, you know, two, two plus two is four, yeah. four and then yeah. so we have this microscopical changes in the beginning, and we yeah. really don't really see the, the exponential curve until we, we, we we're at the latter part, maybe even the last part of, of the yeah. cycle. And, yeah. and that affects people's adoption rate. I think there are a lot of different things that affects whether an, a technology is adopted or not. I think in those initial phases, um, one, one thing that I think we underestimate is the impact of sheer luck, uh, coincidences. Again, I think we, as humans, we have a tendency to focus on whatever made it. So this is, this is a very typical cognitive yeah. bias as humans. Yeah. We focus on those technologies and those companies that actually made it. And then we yeah. think that this is the this is the benchmark for what's possible. But yeah. what we don't see are all of these other technologies or companies or what, for whatever reason never made it. And there might be huge potential in those. Um, so we, we kind of don't see exactly uh, what's going to make it. And those, a lot of them, the, the you know, 75% of all companies fail at least. So... If you start up using a, a product, or a, it can be an idea, it can be a product, whatever is exp um, uh, un follows a dynamic of exponentiality, if you're a very, very early adopter, uh, we typically focus on, you know, we hear about the early, early adopters of technology that, that made it. But you could be an early adopter of a technology that died in its early stages. So I think it's very yeah. difficult for us to kind of to, to, to generalize um, around emerging technologies because the ones that we hear about today, those are the ones that actually made it. 
So, and there's a yeah. lot of social dynamics that uh, that that determines whether uh, which technology is going to win out. So, early in the early stages of the the, the automobile, for example, um, yeah. electric cars were actually not that uncommon. But then, you know, that we we know that you know that they started striking oil, and they were able to create the combustible engine, and then railway and started. Um, uh, building highways and, and the rest is history. So we, we tend to, I think, um, attribute the engineering aspect of technology with much more um, value than that all of these other uh, interconnected variables such as societal change and um, yeah, and, yeah I, I, human behavior. Human behavior, absolutely. Yeah. The way that humans are different. So, so I think that what we see today, um, I, I'm not trying to undermine uh, the 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 importance of the uh, technologies that we have today, but it's important to view these technologies in the context of a lot of other possibilities, uh, a lot of uh, or or the companies that win through with their specific brand of a certain technology. We, we, we were looking at the success stories. We don't look at the ones that could have maybe tweaked a little bit differently and maybe opened some different doors and opportunities. Interesting. Uh, so let's go over to the next question. Uh, what emerging technologies do you think will have the greatest impact on the future of humanity as a species? So... Uh, I think that what is going to be extremely impossible, given the challenges that the Earth is facing at the moment, with uh, nearing um, how many nine billion people, and everybody wants yeah. to have a you know good standard of living, we have to nurture the technologies that can help us do more with less. And I think there's been a shift from I think slowly we might see a shift from. Technological innovation that is focused on the consumer market, and a little bit more on the sort of infrastructural aspects of of how things are being produced, how we are um, procuring the things we need in our life. For example, uh, we're probably going to continue to move away from fossil fuels. Uh, yeah. Solar energy uh, is, are, is one of those type of technologies that are moving at an exponential rate. So we're yeah. underestimating, many people are underestimating uh, its potential and, and pointing to adoption rate at maybe, you know, a few percent. But when you look at the exponential curve, they're really yeah. going to face a future where that big fusion ball in the sky is, is where we're going to get our energy from. Um, I also think... Yeah. We might be looking at, and this is this is a little bit more of a difficult, hard to predict. But the world is going to focus more on uh, reducing its meat consumption. There's a lot more focus on um, uh, on, on how meat consumption and the, the, the meat consumption that we're seeing on track growing today is going to continue to deforest. It's going to continue to produce. I contribute to climate change and greenhouse gases. Yeah, I believe there's going to be more focus on that, but there are vast improvements happening in, uh, in, in laboratory meats, in cultured meats. Um, when you look at some yeah. of the largest meat companies today, 
they are actually rebranding themselves as protein companies. They no longer call themselves meat companies because they're yeah. they, they're picked up this trend that yeah uh, we're going to look more kind of like a shift in ideology. Yeah. Yeah, in ideology uh, and in habits, uh, you look at the younger yeah. generation. They're not picking up meat. They're not eating as much meat as as uh, their their diets are changing. Um, yeah. At least in uh, societies that used to have a very sort of meat heavy uh, 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 diet a few generations ago, we're starting to see the younger generations move away from that. So and 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 the the promise of laboratory meat is that you can actually create. Uh, traditional meat where we're at the cusp of being able to, um, to to grow meat that tastes just like regular type of meat. And, and I think that yeah. in a lab, and I think that at a point in the future, we will look back and we'll think, what were we doing? Why did we grow you know, animals to be big consumers yeah. <laughs> when we could have just grown it in the lab? I think <laughs> yeah. But if 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 some would argue that if you hadn't gotten it wrong in the first place, then you wouldn't have figured out that it was actually wrong and you're supposed to do the right thing by growing meat in the lab. <laughs> that is a very good point. That is absolutely yeah. <laughs> yeah, very interesting there. So I'd like to get to the part that really interests me a lot, and and that is about Generation Z. For a lot of folks uh, uh, out there, they don't really understand the concept. The concept is not. It's not a common concept that's out there uh, for people to really understand. Uh, and for even people like me, uh, if, if I didn't really know what uh, the Generation Z was all about uh, before I met you. So I'd like to understand, tell us a bit more about Generation Z. First of all, what is what is it all about? And uh, what's the role of uh, emerging technologies? What role will emerging technologies play in their lives? Now, as we go into the future. So we typically categorize humans uh, into different, you know, uh, boxes based on, you know, uh, when they're born, what gender they are. Um, and there's a lot of different ways of categorizing people. And a lot of times when we do that, it's, it's for nefarious purposes. And the humans have a tendency to, to build tribes. And so I think that generational research has been somewhat frowned upon because it's been viewed as another way of categorizing people, pigeonholing them, putting them into boxes, um, which, which is sad because the, the, there's a whole strand of social science that uh, strives to understand our differences, not with the purpose of uh, of a feeling of bigotry, but rather to, to understand how we are different and why we are different and how we can um, sort of meet each other with a greater understanding, almost from the view of an anthropologist who really just wants to understand someone who's different than yourself. And so, so when you, when you, if you do a search on any generation, really, I mean, millennials or Generation Z or baby boomers, you will get those texts that want to portray them as the great paria of the world. And you will yeah. get those texts that, that want to try to understand how are they really different? How are they uh, trying to do things different in their lives? <clears throat> so, so categorizing people based on when they're born is really just about that. It's, it's, it's trying to understand how 
growing up in one specific time has an impact on your formative years and make you different than someone who was born maybe 50 years before. It doesn't mean that you don't have anything in common with people born 50 years before you or the people who will be born 50 years after you. It just means that there are certain trends and certain variables that will, will, will make you think different and make you tick different than them. So if you look at the current generations that we have today, uh, you have the, um, the silent generation who are in their 70s and 80s today. Those are the ones that are uh, that, that, that experience their childhood years before what we consider the modern age or the, the modern, just the half uh, of the last century, which created some, some cultural, cultural changes and technological changes. So they've been kind of the ones that, that, that it has been able to see this development of uh, an, an old world in coming into a new world. My, my own mother, who is 80, she can actually remember when they had uh, horses uh, in, in the streets and wow. where you didn't even see cars. Yeah, I, I know. It's, wow. uh, <laughs> so it's, you know, uh, that's what I go to the zoo to see. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, another, uh, and, and, and it's funny because they, they've been able to to witness all of these enormous changes all all of until the digital age. And then you had the baby boomers who more or less grew up in this um, this newly industrialized, modernized world where the yeah. they took uh, they took you know mass production, mass consumption for granted, and uh, they they grew up developing you know the personal computer. There was a lot of focus on uh, individual finding yourself uh, individualism during the, the the baby boomers years, at least in the West. And I know there's when when, when I talk about these generations, I know that they they've gone through different trajectory in different parts of the world. So I'm I'm heavily right now I'm depicting it how how we've observed it in generational research in in the U.S. and in Europe. Um, and and. Again, you know, when you look, when you talk about generational differences, there are huge, profound differences, which are interesting because we're starting to see a convergence. If you look at younger generations today, someone in uh, the United States could have more in common with um, someone in Nigeria than if you go, for, for example, 50 years back. So that's another yeah. in, another interesting point. Um, but when we look at the, the youngest generation today, they're the ones that are born after the millennial generation. We typically think of them as being born after 1995. Although it's not like, you know, you have a new species all of a sudden rearing their head. Yeah. You know, so, um, <laughs> so we typically think of Generation Z. We think of a generation that has been growing up with technology at their fingertips quite literally because they were given these screens when they were young you know when they were um uh, still children we saw the the, the 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 new iphone so while the baby boomers might have developed the the personal computer um like you know the, the those first personal computers like the the mac back in the yeah in the 90s this this generation is growing up with having an enormous computer power just in their pockets. And that is incredibly both empowering, but also threatening. Because on the one hand, you have access to technology that was only 
available to NASA engineers once in a time, back, back in the days. But at the same time, you also have uh, access to a world um, which you might not be ready for, given your tender age. And, um, and so, so it's, an, uh, it, it's almost like a social experiment to see how young people are navigating their lives in that, uh, in that world of constant communication uh, information overload and, and and these digital footprints that you cannot necessarily get rid of uh, if if you overstep a boundary. So it's it's from a social point of view, it's it's an interesting experiment. I think there's been a lot of focus lately on uh, on the threats of these technologies, uh, cyber bullying, um, an enormous rise in, at least in again in the Western world, we've seen an increase in uh, depression, anxiety, even suicide. This is very troublesome, uh, and these are, of course, the the kids that have had, you know, there, there's a clear connection here. There's a clear correlation between use of these devices and these these social ills that we're starting to see. But I think it's a little bit negative because it's, you know, technology has always been been carrying the brunt of of the social ills. You know, back in, uh, they've been blamed for the social ills uh, that we like we like to blame technology for for how our younger generations are behaving. And it's, uh, if you go back to my generation, it was MTV. Uh, you know, um, so. So again, I think it's important that we kind of try to distinguish between the technology they are using and 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 what this is it a technology in itself or is it the window of the world that this technology is bringing into their screen? Uh, oh, okay, uh, that's great. I, I like to begin a, a, a kind of a, a, a new perspective uh, today's. Um, you talked about uh, the negative uh, effects of the new technologies are having uh, or might have or actually are having on the, the Generation Z and how they are adopting these technologies. And uh, So can we say that uh, uh, the negative projections uh, that are being given on these technologies and how they are affecting the young ones uh, is... A kind of like a mental projection of the baby boomers uh, on, and the millennials because they are they weren't born into these technologies. Uh, they actually we are the ones who manufactured them. So as they, they they grew up to see these technologies evolve, and they grew up to see their children born into this technology. So uh, kind of like the, 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 all the 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 noise and the the force that we make. The, the people have been making out of these technologies. Don't you think that it's actually the fears and the, uh, the, uh, 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 the, the, the projections, the mental projections of the baby boomers as against uh, uh, actually the reality of these technologies? Because actually, if you look at the Generation Z, they have actually adopted this technology. If they do not actually appear unprepared, you know, meeting these technologies, they were born into this world and... and, and, and and they had these technologies and they started utilizing them. So m one of the problems I think that um, people might be missing or the, the, the issue that people might be missing out is that there's a kind of like a, a cultural, a cultural 
friction here or an, ide- an ideological friction in the sense that more like an ideological friction in the sense that you have people who created the computer but we aren't very much attuned with it and people who were born into it more like it's, it's two civilizations clashing i do think you have a very good point there um because if you look at for example one of the the problems that has been attributed to uh, Generation C's interaction with, with social media technology is that they, they're being uh, considered not caring about things like privacy issues. They have, they've been attributed yeah. with a lack of uh, or, or a carelessness around how they project themselves in social media. It actually yeah. turns out that they have these digital natives approach to how to to prune and to to um, curate the the particular images that they want to project in social media so when you look at a baby yeah. they're much more likely to to not make those distinctions if you look at the grandmothers you might be sharing yeah. life story on uh, on Facebook and not even realize that she kept it it's uh, kept it on public view if you look yeah. at the, if you look at a, a generation Z or they might share more in volume in social media, but they have a much more uh, deliberate approach to how they project themselves. For example, yeah. when they picked up Snapchat, a yeah. lot of it to do with the fact that you could completely delete all your digital footprints. So a, a typical Gen Zer using Instagram will yeah. very and create two different profiles. So one is intended for close friends and family, and the yeah. other account is is the one that they can allow to to be public, the one that is projecting their their public identity. Yeah. So more like they are taking control of their they're, activity and their presence uh, in in the social media. They are taking control, and that what what baby boomers and Generation Xers presumed is that this was communicated through the quantity of content that you share. But it's not about yeah. the quality of content you share. It's, yeah. it's how you are curating yourself, the, the public image that you're curating for yourself. And yeah. I, I also think that, the, you know, what, what we believe is, a, is a, an acceptable way of presenting yourself in social media might, might not necessarily be setting the standard for how, what is acceptable in, for example, in 2030 when they are out looking for, for jobs or, or when, when they really yeah. have things. So, so again, we are projecting our narratives, our worldview, our experiences, and our own history onto this generation. That's very true. Yeah. So, yeah. And as we go into the future, you find out that with reality is like virtual reality and uh, augmented reality and big data, uh, it becomes very difficult uh, for you to really hide from the system uh, of this system of ubiquitous data and eyes watching you from every corner. Uh, you cannot really maintain your privacy in a, as we would want it today. Because when you have a system where almost everyone is watching <laughs> watching you, there is no, there is no way for you to actually protect yourself or to really save your privacy other than you doing it yourself by projecting to the people, to projecting to the world what you actually want them to see and not by expecting an external system to really save you, you know, or give you a, a privacy shield. 
Yeah, I, I think that again, you know, it's uh, it's it's not so much in the technology themselves. It's about how humans interact with the technologies. And again, okay. that's, I think it's very important for us to when we look at technologies, uh, we don't we, we move. We look at the moving moving stage behind it. It's not just that technology on the stage and what it can do, but it's a it's it's how it's adopted in the social context. And that social context will change. That will change in yeah. relation with the technology that it's using. So that is a very good point. But it does not completely eliminate the uh, the troublesome statistics that are coming out about Generation Z. That we have seen a massive increase in um, in some worrying uh, social states uh, and and worrying um, psychological. Um, mental illness, for example. So that that is something that we as a society need to to address. But I, what I do believe is that it's very easy to to grab that new technology. Oh, we don't have any experience with it, so we're, we're gonna we're going to see how that correlates with with some with with that lower state of mental health, uh, mental well-being, and then let's see if those two go together. And if they do, let's attribute a causal effect there, which might not necessarily be what we should do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this is even causing more problem. Like you talked about the uh, troubling statistics uh, that are coming out about Generation Z and the adoption of technology, especially with our social media. It, it appears that our attention has uh, has been increasingly commercialized. With the question of the attention economy that we now uh, apparently leave, uh, where technology companies are trying to get you to stay on the screen more. And yeah. this is now reducing your time to reflect and meditate and uh, engage in creative thinking, which leads to creative solutions. Do you think or do you see uh, the, the the Generation Z, you know, finding a way to navigate their way in order to, you know, unplug from these attention fixed technologies? You know, do you see them trying uh, devising a way to, you know, still be on the system but also be creative and? Uh, make use of attention in more meaningful ways? Oh, that is a very good question. Um, so far, I, I don't see, I haven't seen too many, um, more than anecdotal evidence of uh, new fads that are, are you know, we're talking about FOMO, the fear of missing out. And now we're, we're, we're there's, there's some variants of that now. Uh, JOMO is the new, apparently the new saying yeah. that, Jomo is the joy of missing out. I think these yeah. are catchwords. They're fads. They're they're, they're wishful thinking. Um, uh, we hear about the digital detox. Uh, we do hear about young people taking steps to try to sort of to take breaks from the technologies. We see them. Um, uh, we see in schools, for example, we have seen an increase in the focus of mindfulness and. Interestingly enough, there are technologies that can help you with mindfulness too. These little thing that you put on your head and yeah. measures how much, how mindful you are, or how, how, which parts of your brain are brains are are working, etc. So, you know, it, it seems like technology is something you never can escape. Um, I, yeah. I think we live in a very hyper-connected world, absolutely. I think it's going to be difficult for us to kind of escape that. I think what we might see instead, instead of completely letting technology go away, we're starting to see that the technology is moving into our, 
our environments. So instead of having this screen that you have to deal with on a constant basis, you know, you see the typical, you know, cartoons about kids today, they walk around looking yeah. down screens. <laughs> well, the future <laughs> are like, you know, they're, it's, it's, it's everywhere, you know, you're just, it's through your voice, it's through your, your uh, face, facial movements, etc. You know, you have this yeah. artificial intelligence. You're immersed. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think that yeah, we're it, rather than actually taking a break from it, we're we're immersing with it, and technology is going to go back into the background, so you don't see it so much. So then, it, you you could say that makes it even more difficult to get away from it. Or you might say, well, at least you got the screen away. At least you know it's more like in the background, so you can you can sort of have that quiet space, and you can even use that quiet space or use the technology to help you find those quiet spaces in yourself. Um, it's interesting. I don't know if this is the generation that is going to grow native to that sort of um, uh, that that sort of reality maybe it's the next generation generation alpha they might you know grow up in in a time where there's absolutely no distinction between what is technology and what is not what is a digital interface and what is not um but yeah it's 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 an interesting um interesting question it goes back to the human nature i think you know um what do we crave as human beings? We are, after all, you know, our genetic code was was written millions of years ago. So we are just yeah. all transplants into this this uh, hyper digital world. So I think that it's you know what we do as humans uh, are are driven far more by you know our, our internal you know our our old selves, our lizard brain, if you will, you know, than uh, these these technologies around us. I hear sometimes uh, speculations, particularly in technology conferences. I hear the speculations that this next generation is going to do away with this need, for example, the need of privacy. They're going to do away with these. Um, their 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 brain, all of a sudden, they they can uh, multitask better than than older people. I don't believe that at all. I think we're still, you know, we're still victims of our own biological makeup. We're victims of our, again, that genetic code that was written long ago. So we'll see that younger generations will navigate differently just to create that space of privacy for themselves. They will navigate differently to try to find those mindfulness. And they might actually even use uh, innovative technology to generate that as well. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, interesting uh, answer there. I like to talk about um, the the physical world that we live in, uh, and um, more of this physical world that we live in, and also the digital space. Uh, uh, currently, uh, there is this uh, huge gap. Of course, um, maybe not really huge, but we can actually differentiate it, our, our, our digital space from the physical space. You know when actually you're online and when you're offline. Um, but uh, with the technologies that are coming up, with the emerging technologies that we are now having, uh, like virtual reality and a whole lot of that, uh, yeah. we might see, I, I, I don't know, how will these technologies affect the space uh, between uh, the, 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 the thin line, the, the line physical and digital, how will it affect it? Um, because this is based on how emergent technologies will affect uh, our our spaces, our spaces, both the digital and the physical, especially the physical. 
you have we also emerging technologies like nanotechnology that is hugely gaining ground and uh, with these realities materials can be reconfigured you know right from their uh, from the microscopic level or even sub microscopic level up onto the uh, the full scale so how do you see emerging technologies you know really transforming our world will it 50 years from now by 2050 will someone still recognize our world will you be able to differentiate the two or will it look very surreal i uh, yes interesting and i think very often when we think of uh this merge uh, this uh, merging of the physical and the digital what comes to mind is typical virtual reality augmented reality mixed reality yeah. where you sort of have this digital filter projected onto the real world that you're walking around in uh and and of course this is you know this is the um wonderful fodder for fiction writers and and non-fiction writers um so because it's so visible that's what you see um i have yeah. a interest in um in in artificial intelligence and in and in, in, in internet of things you know the emergence of technology uh, computational ability in our environment I think that the parts that are not so visible are how they will connect us with data how our data is constantly connected with one another so you can for example take the infrastructure of self-driving cars if we do get that we have an infrastructure of well, there's there's two parts to the self-driving car you have the vehicle to vehicle communication where you have the um this is the sort of the internet of things this is how vehicle can navigate in its its environment and figure out what else is going on in its in its environment uh, and then you have the computation that happens inside the vehicle the the um the artificial intelligence the processing of the information that it gets through its lidar and radar and and the, and the different cameras and sensors that you have on uh, on the car um and so you have the combination of those two technologies working together uh then you really then you're really talking about immersing technology into the landscape because all of a sudden you have where, where where's my data where's your data where's uh, uh which data should uh commute be communicated to the cloud what should not uh every time i go out in the car and i go somewhere that's that trip is going to be recorded somebody knows that i have went from from a to b um yeah. uh, they they know if i stopped uh, by a store on the way home so so th- all of this data becomes public information uh, and i think that this is where we're going to see that that transition of of these you know yeah. these two very different worlds when they when they converge it's our personal data this is not necessarily going to be projected uh on, on sort of like a sci-fi looking type of augmented reality project yeah. landscape but 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 it's it's invisible and maybe that's why we don't pay so much attention to it but the ramifications of that are uh troublesome uh it's uh, it it can be we, we don't know yet we we don't know the full ramification of having all of our data and and you know especially if we connect all of the different devices that uh has our health information i, I mean there there there's some interesting scenarios to think about in that perspective so uh yeah 
Okay, um, interesting there. Uh, just to stay a little bit more on what you uh, talked about there, uh, there is a growing number of literature out there that suggests that our world today is even better than what we had in the past. And this is thanks to the technology that we've been able to develop over the years. And with the likes of Steven Pinker, he's talked about, uh, uh, he's led credence to this fact that our world today is very much better than what we had in the past. Now, in the same vein, there is also uh, uh, the other school of thoughts or P of people who, who think that as we keep on developing our technology and, it's, and we keep on using it to, to develop our world, uh, in, in the same vein, this technology has contributed enormously in destroying our planet and leading to global warming and climate change. Now, that is also a valid argument. Uh, we can talk about that much later. But let's take a, a little bit more on the argument of the likes of Steven Pinker. If we stay on that argument and we take it uh, to the question of data, as we're talking about with these technologies you know, coming up, don't you think with the whole lot of big data that these our technology uh, our technologies are now providing us you know, don't you think that if we utilize this technology it would go a long way in helping to solve even these problems these challenges and you know in the global warming and climate change these problems that we're witnessing in our world today problems that we are created by even uh, the the wrong use of, of technology Absolutely. So when we focus mm. on the downfall of uh, internet or uh, the internet of things related type of technology, uh, such as privacy issues or cybersecurity issues, those are the side effects. We shouldn't, that, that, that should not make us, you know, uh, deflect from the real issues, which is, which is everything that we can actually do with this technology. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So when you have the, inter when you have the capability of embedding sensors uh, and yeah. uh, computational abilities into the environment, you can also prevent the violation of the very same, that very same environment. So you take, for example, in the rainforest, uh, there are startups now that are embedding sensors into the, in the rainforest that, that will send an alert whenever there is attempts at, at illegal logging. Now, okay. the same thing, um, it could be the same topic technology could be implemented anywhere where there's a risk of uh, some sort of violation against environmental standards or, you know, anything that we want to control in our environment. This, this type of information will help us prevent a lot of this from happening. So, so there's definitely the upside of, of this type of technology. If you really want to speculate on how this technology is preventing bad things from happening in the future, you can take a look at the minority report and you see how uh, you, can, you can use predictive analytics to prevent crime from happening. And we're, the, the scary part is that we're already there uh, in, with the technology, with predictive algorithms today. Given enough data points, you can actually, to, with a certain level of confidence, predict when and where different types of uh, criminal events might happen. Again, okay. We cannot isolate the, that capability from, you know, things like privacy issues and, and things of that nature. So we could become a very uh, 
the surveillance society where we, we make sure that the the way we prevent violations to happen to our societies and to to our nature is by with, through constant surveillance is by having these technologies embedded into our environments so but again you know it's all about perspective it's um it's do we want to focus on you know the the, the problems the negatives yeah okay that's great uh that's uh interesting there so uh, the next question i'd like to ask you i know we've touched on it uh somehow uh in the past but i'd like you to pick out uh one or two uh emerging technologies here and there just to elucidate on and explain uh, more on on what i'd like to ask you i'm talking about the demerits and the, the merits the merits and the demerits of these technologies you can pick out one or two and trying to explain to us, in essence, uh, the very nature of these technologies, uh, do they pretend good for us or bad? I, I think it's definitely the user. Um, it's uh, your intention and how you're using this technology. Let's take, for example, uh, image classification and computer vision. So there's, a, there's one of those technologies okay. that are a lot of changing. Uh, these are deep neural networks that have the capability of recognizing and predicting what type of image it's looking at. It's getting better and better at this. We're, we've come to a point where you can actually um, create videos of inauthentic videos, fake videos, where you can actually... Yeah, yeah so you have those. Uh, it's, it's becoming more, more and more difficult to distinguish what is real and what is fake. And obviously, in an, in an information-heavy society, we need to be able to, to tell what's real and what's not real. Well, you can also use the same technology to, to find, for, to, to, to use, for example, anomaly prediction. So when, when you have a fake image, typically uh, there will be some anomalies in, in, that, uh, in that image projection. So you can use the same technology against itself. So if you, if you, if you for example, um, go on a search engine or to, or to a social media, you might be, we might be able to, in the future, see some sort of verification score that lets us know, is this real or is it fake? So, okay. you know, mm. when, with one technological opportunity, you also have another technology coming right behind and making sure that you can correct for it. So... Again, I, I couldn't say that, you know, take artificial intelligence or machine learning, you could, you could use it for nefarious purposes, but you can also use it to set the record straight. So that's, that's one example. We may also use, uh, for example, um, vast amount of data uh, that we can find on the internet, either in the form of natural language processing or, or again, computer vision, and take a lot of those user-generated data in order to figure out how we can sell a particular product, that's that's what's happening already now. That's what companies are doing. But we may also take a lot of that data in order to create predictions of where where we we have an emerging social problem. So it's all about who is using the data. Uh, there's been a lot of focus lately on. Uh, on, on people being taken advantage of because of these so-called black box algorithms that they don't get access to the same type of loan or they get pushed on maybe a loan that is uh, that is um, predatory. 
uh, because because of different because they can't get a conventional loan. So it's there's a lot of focus on how we're using artificial intelligence in order to to find the weak the weak people who we can manipulate with our nefarious offerings. But we can also do do the opposite. If you're a social worker, you might be able to distinguish the people who are in in a certain risk group for for one yeah. or another. Um, for example, one recent um, breakthrough in uh, in artificial intelligence, uh, or specifically in in, in um, uh, NLP, is the ability to find based on text written um, user generated text. You can actually find out who are struggling from uh, from depression, who might even be at a suicide risk. Um, and of course, the the use of that type of information would be interesting for social workers, for teachers, for parents, where the end goal is to to diagnose, to be able to diagnose um, a, a condition. Uh, same thing with uh, cancer treatments and you know biological statistics, where they're able to find anomalies that can indicate. A certain type of illness very early. So, so, so technology can be used for good or bad. It's almost impossible to say that you know this is entirely a bad technology or this is entirely a good technology. We really have to look at the overall motivation for how we're using it. That's my conviction. Okay. I agree. I agree with you largely uh, that it's more about the uh, adoption. Uh, uh, of these technologies, how we adopt these technologies as against these technologies itself. Uh, but uh, don't you think that um, following out the way that we adopt these technologies, we might come to condition our technologies uh, in ways that they become they become conditioned in ways that are not suitable for us? A practical example, let, let me just bring this down. Uh, Tristan Harris, you know, uh, talked about uh, how these technologies are really affecting uh, uh, individuals as they uh, use uh, social medias. They are they are they are they are now spending more time on the screen and and uh, and all, all that not. So he canvassed. He argues that uh, w we shouldn't bring up the arguments that it's all about the individual and he decides when to use his phone or not. That actually these technology systems are structured in such a way that uh, they get you hooked onto the system. That here, the, the, the builders of this system actually look at the, uh, the psychology of their users and they try to leverage on that in order to put them uh, in, in those, um, put them in, in, in boxes. So uh, basically that's, the users are helpless because this is something that has been, you know, you have, you've been hacked, your brain has been hacked. Uh, more like uh, so uh, don't you think as we continue to condition our technologies in certain ways that they might come to a time where they become conditioned in ways that are not suitable for us permanently in that way and so our technologies in their very nature becomes you know dangerous to us yeah, again, it's this uh, resiliency and adaptability that we have attributed to the, you know, to the younger generations, the ones that are actually native to those technologies. Because, you know, although the technologies ha are being deployed in a way that could be seeming manipulative, which I do believe is correct, um, 
again, I think when you when you grow up with that as the de facto reality, that's the reality that you 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 grow up in. You're already aware of this, so you can set up some of these boundaries. Like you can, for example, there. If you look at people who are using ad blockers. You very rarely find people over 40 who are using that. That's for younger people, right? Yeah. Uh, VPNs mm-hmm. that who are, uh, you know, encrypting their searches uh, and, and, and going to, to uh, and using VPNs to prevent the analysis of their, their browsing data. That's the young people. So, um, so again, I think that as, it's a, it's a little bit of a cat and mouse race here is that, you know, they, they, the data scientists will continue to try to find ways to use our technology against ourselves, and we will continue to try to find ways to not let them do it. But it might go through generational change more than um, uh, more than you know iterative change within ourselves. Um, but yeah, definitely. And, and, and who do you I, think will win the race? Who do you think will win the race? Is it the, those who are structuring the, who are building the technology, uh, or us uh, that are trying to adopt this technology? Who do you think will win the fights? Because definitely, once what has to take the day, uh, I, 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 we don't know. So, what do you think? Both. So, what what's happening here is that you will get uh, a bifurcation of people who consider themselves merely users or consumers. And the people who are trying to actually use the technology in order to to navigate to grab it and navigate it and use it in their own way, um, but uh, it, I, I am afraid that I, I do I okay. do that the consumer the passive consumer uh, group is going to probably be greater than the ones who are actually using it for for more productive purposes and who has a very more proactive relationship to and an understanding of the way that they might be manipulated through these technologies. So, okay, that's great. That's great. So, um, uh, since you are in the consultant business, uh, um, for business owners and startup founders, entrepreneurs, and how can they leverage on these emerging technologies? And especially when it has to do with data, because, uh, increasingly, we have come to recognize the fact that the data has become the most important resource, the most important resource in the world today. So how can they leverage on this data? Okay, okay. So I think one of the most important things to understand is this cognitive bias principle of survivorship bias. I think it is incredibly important to first, the first type of data you need to look into is has this been tried before? Did it fail? Why did it fail? So that's the first thing you need to ask yourself, because just because you have a good idea or a good technology, we, we tend to sort of only focus on what could go well or what could go completely wrong. You know, it's those two extremes. And we yeah. forget everything in the middle there, you know, all the gray zones, and we forget to yeah. look at what, what are some of the patents that might have been filed before, has this been tried before, what was the reason it didn't go through, et cetera, et cetera. So being, first of all, aware of your environment and that you're operating in. Uh, and you can do that using data analytics methods. I mean, you, there are different type of text analytic methods that you can use to, to search, um, uh, you know, for, for earlier patents, bibliography. Um, and then later, you really should try to monitor your market. 
you need to do some pretty heavy market research. I think we have lulled okay. ourselves into for the past 10 years or so, it's all been all about, you know, rapid innovation and failing yourself to success. Uh, but yeah. but when you do very rapidly, you don't really get to assess the market. So it's very important to figure out what does the market want? How can I project yeah. that the market will want it in the future? And how can I yeah. uh, change what, what do I have to do today to change that? Because again, yeah. the market, idiosyncratic it's not we can't necessarily predict what people are going to do um so if you have a new innovation if you're trying to to reach a market with it it, it you you need to do your research beforehand or otherwise it could become pretty expensive or you could waste a lot of time or energy and 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 uh, investment money so one of the ways to do that is that you can uh, uh, search both your your own databases if you have access to your own databases or or uh, anonymized uh, consumer databases. You can run some statistics there and see if there's a latent possibility for adoption of that particular technology. Or you might also want to include some unstructured data that you find uh, in other in social media or in uh, discussion forum, forums, etc. And you might want to just basically go out and, and try to get information on what is it that people are concerned about. And there might not be like a direct link between uh, uh, their need and your technology, but there could be some sort of opportunity space there that you can identify that you can help so you can understand a little bit better what market that you want to deploy your, your, your technology in. We live in a time that is usually characterized by rapid changes in almost every sector of human life, and, and particularly in the business world. It's uh, really a time where what used to happen, what used to take like, uh, let's say a decade or two to, to happen, now happens in six months or uh, a year. Now you've got a product can come into the market today and disrupt another product. And only for that product to have itself disrupted, you know, uh, in less than a year that it's, uh, that, that it, that it's come into the market. So this is a kind of change that portends some level of uncertainty and which, uh, is not really helpful you know for the nature of our mind and how our brains are fashioned you know with that six stability is not really uh it doesn't really uh, go well with us when we have when we find ourselves in a situation where there is rapid metamorphosis that is occurring on constant basis and this this doesn't portend well for the economy neither so what advice would you give to uh, entrepreneurs, startup founders, and business owners and managers in this time and age that is characterized by rapid change, how can they confront this as a consultant and as someone who's a data analyst, someone who saw this trend of time and change? What advice would you give to them going into the future of how they can really manage uh, these uh, phenomena? Uh, well, you know, there's uh, this this idea of failing fast. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's still there, there's a lot of wisdom into that. You know, fa fail early, fail fast. I also think it's very important. Here's where foresight comes in. So, what foresight consultants do is that we we paint out many different scenarios so that you basically have an A plan, a B plan, a C plan, so that you have internalized the various not only a single trajectory of the market itself, but the different realities 
that your market is going to be subjected to. So you have like this full holistic images of different futures where you can deploy those different technologies. So that ideally what you want to do is to be able to, uh, to, 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 to choose sort of like one, one vision or one idea of how you think the market is going to, to evolve. And you have to do a lot of front end research before that. You do this combination of market research, data analytics, and, and foresight work. So you can, you can kind of, uh, so you can kind of envision that, that future that you're going to deploy your technology in. Now, let's say that that does not pan out. Something goes awry. Like the, the, uh, the, the market was not ready for it. It was too early. It was, uh, just for whatever reason, uh, there was another potential, uh, competitor that came with a product that was slightly better. Now is when you have to learn how to pivot. This is where you use all of your data and the, all of the foresight work that you've done to kind of understand, well, okay, how can I tweak this technology to maybe, um, to, to, to go lateral, to make a lateral move into this okay. other different yeah. technology that has, yeah. that has emerged instead. So that's one way of yeah. doing it. But you should also have some really hard conversations with yourself. Is it really worth bringing to market? Yeah. Is, this, yeah. is this technology really worth it? But I think yeah. that are most successful are the ones that had gone through these different, you know, uh, cognitive um, the, the exercise of understanding uh, um, how their market might may or may not evolve. I think that's important. Okay, that's that's great. Um, so let's get down to the last question. Um, we live in a, in a world that is rapidly changing, like I've touched on in the past, and. Uh, uh, our technology has largely uh, disrupted and destroyed our world, largely, in a very huge way. You know, for, for us, for those of us who live in this part of the world, Africa, you know, we see that the temperature of the sun keeps rising every season, every year. It keeps rising and uh, it keeps affecting us in, in drastic ways. Erosion, flooding, all of that. And for people in, the, in, in your side, you suffer from hurricanes, you know, uh, tsunamis and, uh, you know, challenges that we are witnessing. And this is not only on the aspect of the environment. We also have other problems that are affecting us, uh, courtesy of the kind of technology that we've developed uh, over time. So from your viewpoint, uh, what are the greatest challenges facing us as a species? And uh, uh, having answered, after answering that, uh, how can we leverage on our emerging technologies to solve this? Or what emerging technologies do you see uh, that we can leverage on to solve these uh, challenges, these greatest challenges that are facing us as a species? Yeah. I think you mentioned some examples just right there, and it's it's quite frankly terrifying. To um, have a silver bullet, I think if we did, uh, it would have been uh, already... Uh, carried out. I mean, that's a million dollar dollar question, right? Because it's not really so much about technology at this point. We have a yeah. lot of technologies that can we we know we need to move over to solar energy. We know we need to um, uh, to reduce uh, our meat consumption. We know we need to reduce our, our transportation. We need to live lighter on this planet. Um, we know we need to stop throwing plastics away and have it end up in the yeah. you know so we're, yeah. we're, we're continuing to treat the planet as if there were five other ones that we could uh, use and it seems like that's the trajectory we're going at the moment it seems like we're, we're getting more interested in 
finding new planets that we can move humanity to and then trying to save mm. this. It seems to be like a, um, uh, a desperate solution, if you ask me. Um, again, what the story that I read from this is that we invent all this wonderful technology, but we have no clue how to uh, summon humans, the humans of the world, to actually make the changes that they need to do in order to get there. So we're still lacking in our own um, in our own habits in the leaders that we elect, etc. So, so for, for all the, it's almost like you have you know this. The, everybody's dressed up and ready to go to the party. So we have these technologies that can solve a lot of these problems. But the problem is there's a lack of action. There's an inertia. There's a people. Yeah. When you read that, only ninety yeah. percent. Or only 10% of all of the, the 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 garbage that we we try to recycle, 90% of all garbage is is not being recycled. Um, yeah. You know, when we see that there's still a market for rhino horns, you know, and you have yeah. that are killing out species in order to serve a market uh, that should have have evolved, it makes you question. Is the is is the problem a technological one or is it a social one? And I really do tend to think that uh, it's, it's a social more, one. Yeah, it's a social social. It's the social sciences that I think are going to have to deal with it more than the engineers at this point. Yeah, yeah. Just to touch a little bit more on in on LinkedIn the other day that the last species of the white was it the white rhino has died, yeah. Yeah. and. Uh, I almost shed tears when I when I saw that. Uh, I, I was imagining what it meant, like the last species of a particular thing. Your your generation has died. You know, it's like saying that the last human being is dead or the last African is dead. Yeah. So, and I think this is not really helping us. So, I I don't know. Is there any way? What do you think? How? Do you think we can really change our attitude, you know, towards uh, do we need do we need to preach a different message? Do we need to adopt a different method in order to get people to really understand the scope and scale of what we are facing as a species? Because we are actually endangering ourselves and our children. Yes, I. I, again, I think I think it is a generational change. I think um, it's very difficult. It turns out that it's very difficult to change people once they've reached a certain age. It's, uh, it, habits are difficult to change. Worldviews are difficult to change. Um, and this is one of the reasons that I really enjoy working with generational change and trying to to pick up those emerging trends with that generation. And it turns out that young people are far more aware and they take far more consequences of their actions. They're, uh, they turn they seem to be less interested. And of course, that there are wide varieties. Uh, you have huge, many, many different segments in each generation. So I, it's very dangerous yeah. to generalize. But all in all, if you look at some of the trends that are that are motivating these, these younger generations, some of the, the uh, what they aspire to, you, you, you see less of an orientation towards physical things and more in orientations towards um, less physical, for example, things like image, things like um, 
not non-tangible products, non-tangible yeah. interests. It's it's very much about the projection that they can send out. It's not so much about the things themselves. Yeah. Um, so so I think that gives me a little bit of hope. I don't think that humans are going to stop being selfish and self-oriented. I think that we're going to. Um, it's just that 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 self-orientation, that ego. The uh, has to be preoccupied with something that is not going to to kill our planet, right? So instead yeah. of have obsessions of, uh, of people and the way that they can satisfy their ego is sustainable with a planetary survival. That's that's sort of what we want to go for, and part of that has to do with with pricing, of course. I mean, I think that economists have a very often too much of a narrow view on pricing. There's you know, think that, okay, once you have solar energy, the price of solar energy go below that of fossil fuels and automatic labor, but it's going to try to run towards so, um, um, solar energy. I think maybe in that particular example is, is true because people don't necessarily associate themselves and their, their identity with, with what type of energy they're using. But I think in many, uh, for example, you look again, you look at eating habits, you look at meat consumption, you see far more resistance because it's so intertwined with people's identity. So if you take that away from them, it's much harder to change that. So consumption habits are are difficult to change because they're they're so tied to people's identity. So when you see a younger generation tying their identity and their their self-image to to something different, something that is not tied to over, you know, consumption, if when when you see the peer pressure among younger people uh, going away from consumption and you see this, a certain amount of self-policing in certain social groups that um, it doesn't carry any social value of being a big consumer, of being uh, yeah. obsessed with material uh, luxury, for example. Yeah. I think that's one way and probably one of the few ways we can overcome that problem. Okay, that's well, that's that's interesting and uh, also hopeful. I yeah. think we can uh, take it up from there. So finally, before you go, uh, what are your three best emerging technologies that you like? Oh, uh, that I feel is important. Well, I, I think I'm a little bit biased here because um, as a data analyst, <laughs> I I spend yeah. a lot of time with you know with uh, with um, machine learning algorithms and not that not that I'm not not at the level that they do in these uh, um, universities where they're finding the next uh, the next deep neural network or anything like that. Uh, but uh, I think I'm very biased towards uh, changes in and in, in artificial intelligence. Um, I think it's important for us to kind of identify the different use cases that can come out of that, and that is going to change with what is technological possible, obviously, and, and also what, what people will use. We're going to continue to see these smart technologies and machine learning entities being implanted in our environments. What that means is that they will learn our, our habits over time, so you can have, in terms of consumer, consumer technology, you, you can live a pretty comfortable lifestyle with a little bit of data input about yourself. And I know that there are many people who are working in this area of distributed ledgers and blockchain technology as we're moving in, continuing to move into a world where it's hard to tell fact from fiction. I think that anything that can provide 
um, more insights into authenticity is important. So I do think that blockchain technology has a role to play there. Transparency. Yeah. yeah. Definitely transparency. I see some yeah. of the social trends. Um, we're seeing a greater demand for transparency. We're starting to see that consumers are becoming more demanding in not only requiring that their products are working well, but that the whole supply chain uh, where we're following the ethical practices that they they expect. So consumer consumers are starting to exert much more power than they used to have in the past. Before you go, before we do the closing remarks, uh, where can our listeners find you? So you can find me on my website called After the Millennials. Uh, you okay. can sign up for a newsletter, and it's very infrequent. I send it out possibly once a month or once every other month, so I'm not going to spam your inbox. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn uh, or on Twitter and most of social media. Okay, that's great. Um, I'm Boysen. It was great having you on the show. I, I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed every bit of uh, uh, the conversation and the discussion that we had. And something that I've looked forward to and I think I've... I, I think I think I think it was great. I think it was a great conversation, and uh, I look forward to having you more on the show in subsequent time. You know, so the next time we call upon you, uh, I hope you will respond, and uh, maybe by that time we would have a better connection. You know. <laughs> Hopefully, yes. But no, it was a fantastic conversation uh, and very yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. That's it for today's episode of the Future Discussions Podcast. I hope you did enjoy it. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, uh, your iTunes. You can also subscribe to the show on your Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review of the show as this helps us in improving the quality, the content and the value that we bring to you. For fresh episodes, like our Facebook page at Future Discussions Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Future Discuss. You can also follow me on Twitter at Chuku Augustus. Chuku Augustus is spelled C-H-U-K-W-A-U-G-U-S-T-U-S. I'm also on Instagram with the same handle. If you have any products, any type of products that you would like us to talk about on this show that can really add value to people's lives here, you can contact us on futurediscussions8 at gmail.com that's futurediscussions8 at gmail.com 
stories. Contact us so that we can uh, talk about that and see how we can bring value to people's lives through technology. Once again, thanks very much for listening to this episode. Join us some other time.